Good morning. How's everyone doing? Awesome. Man, is everyone having a, a great morning? Yeah? Good. All right. Glad to hear it. Well, I'm going to give a fair disclaimer. I'm not feeling the greatest right now. You might hear it in my voice. You might hear me sniffle a little bit. Sam said that uh, he, was, he wasn't feeling great the week he did it. Uh, he has a lot more masculinity than I do. Um, so I'm just going to go and share it with you guys. Uh, just a fair disclaimer. If something I say doesn't make sense, it, it could be the Holy Spirit. It could be Benadryl. I don't know. Uh, just, uh, just throwing that out there to start off with. Everyone keeps saying it's allergies, but everyone has it, so I have my doubts. Um, so if you don't want to shake my hand after this, I completely understand. Uh, you can wave and, and tell me it's a great message. If you want to risk it, that's up to you. Uh, I'll, I'll be out there for handshakes. I just wanted to, I wanted to give that little disclaimer before we get started. Um, all right, uh, so I, wanna, I, I imagine I'm going to have more hands than I will if I ask this to my youth group, but how many remembers a time before cell phones? Before cell phones. All right, okay. Good. If I ask that during youth group, they're like, I'm pretty sure God made that on the eighth day. Is that not? Google and cell phones, eighth day. Um, okay, but a lot of us in here remember a time before cell phones, back when our attention span was greater than like that of a goldfish, right? Um, back when, if you wanted to talk to your friend, you actually had to like ride your bike over and, and see them in person. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, I grew up on that. Uh, kids think I'm nuts now. Uh, back when, when you were lost, you were actually lost. Anyone else? There was no recalculating. There was you, a road, and a gas station attendant named Earl, and that's all you had to get by. Right? Okay. Some of us remember that. Okay, so w when I first started driving, we, we had cell phones. They just didn't do anything, right? We had a Nokia. It was like a brick. Y'all remember that thing? You couldn't kill it. You couldn't. It would last for 86 years. You'd never have to charge it. But all I could do is, is you could call people and you could play Snake. Who remembers Snake? Anyone else? The little click, 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 click? Yeah. Okay, so when I first started driving, all we had was those things. And I don't have a great sense of direction as it is. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. Jessica makes fun of me because she's like, you can get lost in Crossville. And I've lived here my entire life. I'm like, you're absolutely right. I can. I know where everything is based on where Walmart is. It doesn't matter where we're going. We're going to the state park. I'm going to drive to Walmart first and be like, oh, yeah, I go that way. All right? Like, I just, that's, that's how I get around. I know where things are based on Walmart positioning. I don't have great sense of direction. So whenever I first started driving, uh, we didn't have phones that could tell us where to go. Um, and Jessica and I, when we were 17, we made our first trip out of town, and we decided to go to uh, Knoxville. We did what you know all teenagers do. We, we went to Knoxville, we went to the mall, we spent money that wasn't ours, um, we, we watched a movie, and we hung out, and, and we just had a really, really good time, and, and we were still at that stage of dating, you know that stage where you could, you could just talk for hours and hours and hours and never run out of things to say? We were, we were at that stage, um, and, and so on our, on our way home, we were just we're chatting it up, and we're just having a, a fantastic time, and, and we're, we're, we're talking and talking and talking. You know, it goes on for hours and hours and hours. The problem is, Crossville is only about an hour and a half away. And so we're talking for hours and hours and hours, and, and Jessica, I believe, brings up the, the, the observation, shouldn't we be seeing Crossville signs by now? You know, you, you might be on to something. We probably should be seeing Crossville signs. 
And so we, we, after a few more minutes of driving, we end up getting off the interstate and going to a Love's gas station, a Love's truck stop, and it had this big map right there, and it was like, you are here. The problem is, here is not where I was trying to go. Here was way up here, and I'm trying to be down here somewhere. Um, and we are about 10 minutes away from Georgia. And it was already past curfew. <laughs> Is not a good time. Uh, we, uh, if you've made that trip back from Knoxville, you already know what we've done. There's a part where you're supposed to split, and you're supposed to go this way, and we didn't. We just kept on trucking. And uh, we, we ended up almost all the way in Georgia, and we were lost. But if, if you can imagine, two 17-year-olds who had dumb phones, already past curfew, we're at this Love's gas station realizing we're like 100 miles away from home, you know that, like, and, and the thing is, too, like, I'm 17 with a bad sense of direction. I've never been to this part of the world, and I don't know how to read a map. I'm not a Boy Scout. Like, I am actually lost for, for a little while. I'm, I'm here. I want to be here. I don't know how to get there. I don't. I don't know how I ended up where I am. I haven't realized I didn't take the right split. So for a moment, we were lost, like legit lost. Like, I don't know which way to go. I, I'm not in Crossville. I don't know where Walmart is. I don't know how to get back to the interstate I'm supposed to be on, right? Like, I am legit lost. So you kind of have, if you've ever been that sort of lost where it's not like I'm waiting for my GPS to recalculate. It's not like it's going to take a few minutes. It's like, I don't actually know where to go from here. Like, it's just, you get this feeling in your gut. Like, it's just, it, you get a little bit of nervousness. Like, you don't know what the next step is. Um, I, I, I had that actually not too long ago in, in a mirror maze, that same sort of feeling. If you've ever been in a mirror maze, you may know what I'm talking about. I'm slightly claustrophobic anyway, so I got in like a mirror maze, and, and it's like you've tried all the walls and you can't go anywhere, and you think you're in a horror movie, and they just dropped one down, they're going to wait for you to die. Uh, no one else, you're going to think about that next time you're in there. Um, that's where my mind goes. But that just that lost feeling, that gut-wrenching, like there's no, there, there's, you don't know which way to go, which way to turn. And the best way to get there, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horrible feeling. Uh, I'm going to call that feeling hopelessly lost. And that's going to be the title of today's message is hopelessly lost. And it, it's that feeling that you're, you're stuck and you don't know which way to go. You don't know how to, to get out of the situation that you're in. And as I read the parables I'm going to be speaking about today, I'm going to be speaking specifically about uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin um, actually, which is the, the lost sheep is the same parable I spoke about uh, last time I spoke, which was interesting. It made me look at the text in a different perspective, and that's what uh, brought forth this message I'm going to bring today is, is that I, I decided to look at the parable as a whole, like look at the, the situation, not just the story that Jesus tells, but the context in which he tells it, to, to imagine it from the perspective of the listeners of the parable. And as, as I did that, I got hung up on this very first verse. I got it to the first verse, and I got stuck. So Luke 15, 1 through 10, uh, the first verse reads this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Now I found this extremely uh, interesting, because what was it that made tax collectors and sinners draw near to Jesus? What, what is it that drew them in? And then I started to think what it would have felt like to be a tax collector or a sinner at this time in first century Judaism. What would it have felt like to have lived at that time and been in this people group? 
to have been what would have been known as, or would have been thought of as an outcast, to be unclean, to be, to be a, a Gentile in this time, what would that have felt like? And you have to think, like, in this time, it's, imagine if you lived in a town, and in this town there was one church, and the only information you got from that church is that they were good and you were not. That they were righteous and you were not. That they have hope, but you do not. And there's no way for you to acquire this. There's no way for you to pass from uncleanliness to cleanliness. And that all you're told your whole life is that you're not good enough and you're never going to make it. And you don't measure up and that you're, you are a sinner or maybe you're an adulterer or maybe you're blind or you're a leper and you are an outcast. I have to imagine that feeling is a little bit like being hopelessly lost. It's like seeing where you want to go but having no idea how to get there. It's like looking at a situation, it's like, I know what I want, I know that I want to experience this God that everyone else is, but I don't know how to get there. And it's just that I'm hopelessly lost. You know why I think that the sinners and the tax collectors, why they flock to Jesus? Because Jesus brought a new message. Not, not a message that changes theology or doctrine, but it, it expands upon it, and it offers grace, hope, and love, something that the, the, this early church was not that he actually would come and he would reach out and he would teach to those that would be considered outcasts, those who not, would not be welcome inside the temple. He would leave the temple walls and he would teach them and he would bring a message of love and hope to those that are hopelessly lost. And I think it's, I think it's awesome because in the second verse, it says these, says this, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Wow, isn't that amazing that he, he receives sinners? And what's that? what are they saying here? They're simply saying that Jesus would talk with sinners, that he would hang out with sinners, that he would chill with sinners who people would be considered unclean. He would obviously go where the other teachers would not go, that he was a rabbi, but he would go to the people that the other rabbis would ignore, the, other, the people that would have been considered unworthy, that he would actually go and he would hang out with them. And he would eat with them, which was a very relational thing, that he would actually make them his friends. And therefore, I mean, if you read the Gospels at all, you'll realize the one thing that the Pharisees hated about Jesus is who Jesus hung out with. And who did Jesus choose to hang out with? He hung out with sinners, with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with the blind, with lepers, with those that are rejected by the Jewish church. He would hang out with them. That was the people that he would surround himself with. And I, I kind of love Jesus' idea for ministry, is that he would actually, I, I call it the eat and preach method. Um, it's actually something I'm trying to employ at the moment in online ministry, is to eat and preach. What he would do is he would go and he would, he would hang out with sinners, and he would hang out with the people that he wanted to reach, and he would, he would actually encounter them first as a friend, and then he, then he was able to speak into their lives. Then he was able to speak in their lives because he's now a friend. And I just thought it was interesting how often we see the sinners and the tax collectors and the outcasts, how often they flock to Jesus, how often they, they, they flock to Jesus and they would just come running. And, and, and it's funny that the sinners and tax collectors, they came first and then the Pharisees came criticizing what he was doing. So what we have going on, if we look at this whole situation, we have two audiences before Jesus. We have the sinners and the tax collectors. Then we have the Pharisees and, and the, the teachers of the Jewish law, that they all came up to Jesus. 
And, and they came up, and, and Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. And so now, with these two people groups in front of him, he shares these two parables. Now, these parables take a whole other, uh, they take a whole different view when you understand the situation, the context he's telling them in. So remember, as, as I read, I'm going to go and read the rest of this. I'm going to read through verse 10. Remember who is in front of him. He has, on, on the left side, he has the sinners and the tax collectors. And over on the right side, he has the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they're all standing there listening to this teaching. And this is what he shares. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? I'm going to pause right there for just a moment. Already, as soon as he begins this parable, he addresses the people. And I believe he, he creates two divisions. We have the 99, and then we have the one. And we know from context that, that obviously Jesus in this parable is the shepherd. And the 99, we can assume, is the, the Jewish people, the righteous people. And they may have made it. They're in, the, they're in the open pasture. They're there. They're in the field. They think they've made it. But what he's saying is, what shepherd wouldn't go after the one that is lost? He's saying, listen, you may have counted these sinners and tax collectors as, as lost, as outcast, as unworthy, as unclean, and, and not worth your time. But the God of all creation sees one who has lost, and he's going after that one. He's not content with just the 99. Our God comes after the entire flock. That he's not leaving one person out there by themselves, but he's actually going to pursue the sinner and the tax collector, the outcast. He's going to pursue the ones that you've given up on. Our God has not, and is continuing to pursue them. And he says this until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus makes it very clear right here. Just so you know, you who believe you are righteous, that there will be more joy, there will be a greater celebration in heaven over one of these sinners who repents and comes to Christ. There will be more joy and celebration over one sinner that comes to Christ than over 99 who believe they need no repentance. He goes on, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, in this we have three distinct parties. We have the owner, then we have uh, the, the, the group, and then we have the one that is lost. And what Jesus is telling us over and over and over again is, is God is going after the lost. Right? God is going for the lost. And that's why I think as, as a church, we can't be an inward-only church that we have to be going out and pursuing the lost people. Because our God is the God of the one. He's not just the God of all of us sitting inside of these walls, but he's the God of, of every lost person out there and that we as a people, we have to be in pursuit of those who don't know Jesus. That we can't be like the Pharisees and the tax collectors. We can't be content inside our Christian bubble. And we can't just say that I am just content. And trust me, I love to hang out with Christians. 
They're a whole lot easier to deal with for the most part. Sometimes, a little bit, all right? <laughs> I, I do, I do. I love to hang out with my Christians, but I cannot limit myself just to my Christian bubble because there's a whole lot of other people out there that need Jesus. There's a whole lot of other people out there that need to know the God of all creation, that need to know the love and grace of Jesus, and we've got to approach them with this message. The message that Jesus brought is love and acceptance, that he came and he loved and he, he engaged and he relaxed and he reclined with the outcasts, with the people who were rejected. And we have to offer that same kind of love and kindness to show this world the Jesus that we know. We have to be the people of God and we have to go out after the lost. Now, I was listening to a sermon this week that, that was completely unrelated with this sermon. It was not, this was not a sermon I was listening to for research. It was just for me. When I'm feeling down, I like to throw on my AirPods, and I like to listen to sermons. And I find that you, you guys know you can have church in the middle of the week, too, right? right? This don't just have to be a Sunday experience. That The Internet is an amazing tool when used correctly. Uh, and I was actually listening to, uh, it was actually a guest speaker at a church I, I like to follow out in Texas, and he, he preached this, this message, and it was, it was amazing because it's like an Old Testament message, and it has nothing to do with the parables or anything like that, but it, was, it lined up perfectly. And if it's okay with you guys, I'm going to share a, a little bit of that, and we're going to jump way Old Testament. And actually, this is something that these Jews should have known. They, they, they would have known this message. But, but, but the, the point of it is, is that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So we're going to jump... Uh, way back in the Old Testament, uh, with a young man we're pretty, all pretty familiar with. Uh, so to, to set it up, uh, back in 1 Samuel 16, there was a king named Saul. Now, now Saul is kind of, he, he's, he fell, off, fell off the wagon here. He's, he's kind of went the wrong way. He started kind of living for himself, and he's made decisions based on himself, that he was, he was given this position by God, and that, but he has actually strayed away and disregarded the commands of God. So, so God has sent a, a prophet, a faithful prophet named Samuel, to find the next king of Israel. And so he sends Samuel to the house of a man named Jesse. Now, uh, Jesse... Uh, he, Samuel shows up, tells Jesse what he's there for. So Jesse goes and he gathers up all of his sons. And he brings his sons in front of Samuel and he lines them up one by one. He's like, okay. So we're going to go and read in 1 Samuel 16, 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So Samuel, he goes ahead and points out probably the biggest, strongest one. You know, that real, the, the kingly looking one. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. See, he is tall. Tall people get all the good luck. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man, these, these Pharisees should have known this. Then Jesse saw Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then called Shema and called Shema to pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse said. He's out tending the sheep. I don't know if y'all caught what just happened. Jesse had ten sons, and he sent nine of them in front of Samuel. This is a Cinderella story right here, right? He sent nine of his sons in front of Samuel, and none of them 
we're the right fit. Have you ever felt like you've been looked over? That you've been passed up? Like it's one thing not to make the lineup, right? It's, not, it's like one thing not to get picked first at dodgeball. It's a whole other thing for someone to keep you in the back room so you can't play at all. <laughs> Have you ever been passed over? Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So we sent for him and had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. This is the one. The one who was not chosen first. Not chosen at all, in fact. The one that was out left tending the sheep. The, the, the one that Jesse didn't think was, was kingly enough to actually even bring in front of Samuel, that's the one that God chose. That young man went by the name of David. And if you know anything about David, he did a few interesting things. But you know what I find the most interesting? He didn't do any of those things immediately. Right now we have a teenage David who has been anointed as the king of Israel you know what he got to do after that? He got to go back and tend the sheep. Lucky guy. Do you imagine that? Like, you are going to be the king of Israel. Now go take care of the sheep. What would end up happening, actually, is, is that David would not immediately become, become the king of Israel. He would actually continue to, to care for the sheep. And then one day, he would bring lunch to his brothers. The king of Israel's new job is to bring lunch to his brothers, who are the soldiers, and there would be a giant there named Goliath that all of Israel was afraid of. And David would go up and he would fight that giant with nothing but a rock and a sling. And we've all heard the sermons on that. And he would, he would down the giant. You know what's funny though is he used, to down that giant, he used what he learned in the waiting. He used what he had learned while caring for the sheep. It said that he had, he had fought lions and tigers, or, or lions and, and bears, <laughs> he'd fought some stuff, all right? He fought some stuff that he, that he had learned while tending the sheep. And I just, I just thought that was interesting, not necessarily with my sermon at all, but, but a lot of times we, we assume that we are out of the promise of God because God's not acting the way we assume he should act. That while we are in the waiting, we are assuming that God has left us and that he has abandoned us and that he's no longer looking over us because things aren't going the way that we think they should go. Listen, just because it doesn't seem like God is acting doesn't mean God is not active. You see, God is always active. And maybe he's teaching you something in the waiting that you're going to lose or you're going to use when you're in the presence of God, that you're going to use when you're actually in the, the practice, right? Maybe you're learning something now that will be useful for you, to you in the future. But the main point of this is, is that God doesn't choose who man typically chooses, right? God selects what man rejects, and God chooses the unchosen. Jesse didn't think that David was, was the king, right? David, Jesse thought surely it was Abinadab, or surely it was Eliab, or surely it was one of these other more kingly sons, but it was actually David. And we see the same concept brought true in the New Testament when Jesus shows up. He shows up to these religious elite and he says, you think that because of your outward appearance, because of your robe and your, your garment and because of all the prayers you get to shout out in front of the people, you think that you are God's elite. But listen, I love the one just as much as I love the 99. 
just because you have the presence and you have the appearance of someone who is godly doesn't make you superior to the one over there in the dirt because I'm the God of all and I love all equally and I've, I've, come, for the, I've come for the one just as much as I've come for the 99. Mark 2.17, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I might have it on here. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for the one. And I think this is really, really good news for you and I. Because I don't know about you, but I, I'm not exactly a, a religious Jew. Uh, I wasn't born into Judaism. I wasn't born into the nation of Israel. So by all standards... I would not have made it into uh, this culture. I would not be under the God of Israel because I was not born at the right time, in the right place. I was not trained up in the law of Moses. I was not, by all standards, I am, I am a Gentile and I would have been exiled from the presence, right? But because Jesus came, and Jesus came in love, and he came for the lost and for the hopeless, he came for you and I, we can be saved, you see, prior to Jesus coming, we were all hopelessly lost. Prior to Jesus coming, we were hopelessly lost. And I, and I come today to speak to those of you that might be in a situation that you still feel hopelessly lost. That even though we are in this building and we are under the presence and the grace of Jesus. There are situations in our life that come up that make us feel that gut-wrenching feeling all over again that we are hopelessly lost, that we are in a situation, we are in a, in a moment, we may be facing trials that we don't know how to overcome, and we truly don't know in which direction to turn or which direction to go, and we all, in all honesty, if we were to say it out loud, we feel hopeless. We feel hopeless. But you know what else I find interesting? Is that if you read scripture, you will not find a single miracle that doesn't take place from anywhere but a hopeless situation. Every miracle of God starts first in a hopeless situation. And so I, I always, I think that it's hard to see it in the middle of it too, because when you're in the middle of the storm, it's hard to see anything outside of that. But when you've ran out of things for you to do, you are right in the presence of God. Over here in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. This is Paul, the great man of God. He says, we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, the great apostle Paul says, we expected to die. We expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God. That's powerful scripture right there. We were crushed and overwhelmed to the point that the apostle Paul expected to die. But as a result, he stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God, who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. And he will continue. We have placed our confidence in him. 
And I think in the midst of hopeless situations, when we can't see beyond the storm we are facing, we have to have confidence not in ourselves, but in the God who can save us. That if we place confidence simply in ourselves, yes, the situation will continue to seem hopeless because we are mortal and there's only so much that we can do. But if we place our confidence in the God greater than all of our problems, then we can have hope. But we don't see a single we don't see a single miracle in Scripture that doesn't first start with a hopeless situation. Gideon was 300 versus 300,000. Moses had his back to the Red Sea with the most fierce army in the world standing in front of him. David stood before a giant. Daniel stood before lions. Jonah stood inside a whale. Peter was a coward. Paul was imprisoned. 5,000 had no food. Lazarus was dead. Timothy was too young. Abraham was too old. Jericho was too strong. And Jesus was hung on a cross. All hopeless situations. From the outside looking in, you couldn't win this. Could you imagine standing with 300 against an army of 300,000? Could you imagine standing before a nine-foot giant as a teenage boy? Could you imagine standing in a pit of lions? Hopeless situations. There is no way out. There is no winning. You are done. Game over. Stick a fork in it. You are done. But God is greater than all situations. God is greater than all circumstances because God comes through. Because guess what? In the midst of hopeless situations, Gideon won without ever having to lift a weapon. The Red Sea parted and Moses and the Israelites walked on through. Goliath fell. Daniel tamed the lions. Nineveh repented. Peter became the rock that the church was built upon. Paul rejoiced. Twelve baskets were left over. Lazarus was just kidding. Timothy built a church. Abraham built a family. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And Jesus resurrected from the grave, conquering sin and death. <laughs> Nothing is impossible when you put Jesus Christ at the head of it. Every hopeless situation has hope when we place our confidence in Jesus. So I want you to know, even though what you're facing may seem hopeless, it may seem like too much, it may seem like something you can't handle, it's not. It's not too much for your God. Because your God is there, and He is present, and He wants you to place your confidence. When you are crushed and overwhelmed, burdened beyond your ability to endure, when it seems like too much, your confidence can't be placed in yourself. Your confidence can't be placed in this world. It has to be placed in the only one that you can really place your confidence in. And he is great, and he is worthy, and he is looking after you, and he loves you beyond, oh, anything you can think or imagine. Oh, he loves you so much. And that's just, oh, as I read this, that's it. I just got overwhelmed with this. God loves you. And though it may seem hopeless, it is not because you serve the God greater than every situation. And I think what Jesus is trying to say is that when you feel hopeless, if you felt like you were a sinner or a tax collector, you feel like, feel like you, were, you were too broken for God, that's exactly who he came for. And my message for you today, if nothing else, you remember this one slide that'll come up right now. <laughs> Jesus says, I have not given up on you. 
I have not given up on you. And I will never give up on you. And I'm going to go ahead and, and, and end here with a, with a quick story. This is going to be an early one. Y'all are going to beat everyone to Cracker Barrel. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm going to end with this story. In Armenia during the 1980s, uh, there was an earthquake that killed, uh, killed 25,000 people immediately. It left millions homeless. Um, that morning, there was a father who dropped his elementary age son off at school. And, and he dropped him off and he said the things fathers say. He says, hey, you know, have a great day. Don't fight with Josh. Uh, I'll see you this afternoon. And he left the school on his way home. And at that moment, the, the road in front of him began to ripple and, and buildings swayed from side to side. And, and I imagine he felt what only the love of a parent could feel and that, that sheer terror. And it's, he, he swung his car around and he starts to head back to his school as fast as he could. And, and as he showed up to his, his just horrific terror, the, the school is, is flat, rock upon rock. And he rushes out. He leaves the door open. He leaves the car running. He rushes into where his son's classroom should have been. And he climbed over the rock and the rubble. And he, he went to where the classroom should have began, been. And he started to dig. And he started to dig and dig and dig. And hours passed. And, and people began coming up to him and said, hey, man, it's, it, it, it's futile. No one could survive this. Just come on back. Come get something to eat. Come sit, get something to drink. Just stop. And the, and the father would cry out, leave me alone. Leave me alone. And he continued to dig and to dig. And they say hours passed, eight hours, 10 hours, 15 hours, 24 hours. And people began to realize he was just digging his grief away. So that when he finally came to acceptance, he could say he did all that he could. And he dug for 36 hours, throwing rock upon rock until he finally heard a sound. And he yelled for help, and a bunch of people came over, and they helped him lift this rock off, and it uncovered this cavern. And inside that cavern was 13 students and a teacher, and one of them was his son. And his son said, Daddy, I told them you would come back. I told them you were coming. Your daddy's coming. He's never given up. He's never given up. No matter how impossible it seems, he's never given up. That's the love of a human father. We are told that the Father, our Father in heaven, loves us so much more than we can think, dream, or imagine. So much more than our human hearts are capable of. That's the love of a father. And so I want to encourage you wherever you're at, whatever kind of situation you feel like you might be in, he has not given up on you. I know in the midst of the storm, it's hard to see beyond it, but your God is there. And he's watching over you and he loves you desperately. And he's fighting for you and he is digging and digging and digging. I don't know what kind of invisible prisons we are stuck in today. What kind of depressions or anxieties or, or health problems or, or losses, what we're stuck in. But your God has not given up on you. The situation may seem hopeless, but your God is not without hope. He is greater than anything we can face. Put your confidence in him today. Whatever it is you're facing, whatever you're going through, you can trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your love is so much, that you never give up on us, 
that you never leave us, that you never forsake us, that you are always here. You have the love of a great father. God, I thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us. God, you know each and every person here. God, you are the God of the one. You know the problems. You know the pains. You know the worries and the struggles of each individual person here, God, and you are with them. God, I pray that you would give us the confidence and the strength that when we are overwhelmed, when we are crushed, when we are burdened, that we would put our confidence not in this world, Lord, not in ourselves, God, but we would place it in you alone. God, I pray that we would give everything up to you, that we would put our faith and our hope in you, and that we would understand, God, that you are always in pursuit of us, God, that we are never hopeless, that we are never lost because you are always, in, you are always after us, God, and you will never, never let us fall. If we put our faith in you, God, you will lift us up. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.